I'm a loud person as it is. Well, turn your Bibles, if you would, please, to the first book of Samuel, chapter 17, as we continue to plow through this chapter. I know it's taken some time, but there's so much uh, that's contained in this chapter that it's very difficult just to pass over it. I mean, you can't hit every nook and cranny, but there's basics here that definitely need to be hit upon uh, for our edification and encouragement uh, this morning. Uh, so what we've seen so far is we've seen the Philistines uh, and Israel gathered uh, together for battle. And it said the Philistines stood on, you know, one side of the mountain and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side. And then there was obviously there was a valley between them, which is called the Valley of Elah. And then we see that Goliath makes his appearance on the scene. He's, uh, you know, he's challenging uh, Israel to a battle. Uh, and it looks here from what we see in history that this was what they would call a duel uh, between two. Try to, try to limit the amount of casualties and instead just have two of the bravest soldiers on each side settle it. And then that would confirm the outcome of the battle. It was a what you would call a decisive battle. And we know that, I'm not going to get into all of this, we know that um, Goliath had, you know, he was suited in armor that was extremely intimidating, very heavy, a shield bearer out in front of him. It could have been looking very, very intense. Um he defied the armies of Israel. I mean, this was the major crime right now is that, you know, he's literally saying that he's defying Israel, ultimately defying the God of Israel. And then we read further on that Saul and his army were petrified. They were, they were in panic mode. They were terrified um, at what Goliath looked like. You know, this whole intimidation thing worked on Israel. It certainly did. Um, and then we find David coming on the scene, uh, doing exactly what he's supposed to do, not looking for a fight, not looking for any problems, looking to serve, looking to help out. I look to benefit uh, Israel as much as he can. He was sent there, obviously on a food errand. Uh, we see that he was obedient to his father by taking care of the sheep and doing the things that he needed to do. You could tell his character outside of the battlefield at this point you see what kind of man he was he was a man who was prudent he was kind he was respectful he obeyed his father and that's extremely important um which brings us further on down to the point to where um we know that they were they were in fear mode uh david had spoke to all of them that stood by him that what should be done to this man if, if, if I if you know if someone kills him will they tell him exactly what that would be what that would look like um, and then we see the harassment of his brothers right it's always goes along with the territory anytime there's a calling upon an individual's life if the other ones within that family aren't called themselves a lot of times you see jealousy you see slander, um, and they were brothers. I mean, brothers fight, they call each other names, right? We know how it goes. It wasn't any different back then. They were still human beings, still fighting with sin and pride, 
Um, so you can only imagine what's this pipsqueak doing here? You know what I mean? We all got the weapons. You got nothing. You know, shouldn't you be about your father's business? Come on, you know. Uh, we've got manly things to do. But what what's so manly about being a coward? You know what I mean? If you're so manly, why don't you get up and do this? It's been 40 days straight, almost a month and a half of this endless, you know, torment from this guy. And you're just going to sit here on your rear end you know, and eat bread and corn that I'm bringing to you and do nothing, you know. It's you who wants to be entertained and it's you that in a couple of short moments will most certainly be entertained unlike you've ever seen before, uh, which happens. And David says, is there not a cause? Of course there's a cause. So that they, they basically hit him again with, the, with some more of their sarcasm. Uh, David's brought to Saul, and he just basically tells Saul, he says, let no man's heart fail because of him. And this is, this is a, a beautiful saying because David had seen him, and uh, we know that David uh, had a past with being able to rescue his sheep. As he says, he's killed a bear, he's killed a lion. And listen, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I wouldn't be tugging on any lion's beard. Okay, it says he grabbed the lion by the beard, right? And struck him dead. I mean, you ever just think about that for a moment? Like, do you really, I mean, have you ever seen a lion watch those videos on TV? Have you ever seen those things? Could you imagine literally walking up to that thing and grabbing it by the beard? It'd be the end of me, let me just say that much. Or what about a bear out of all things? So, you know, when I think of these two beasts that, that the Lord had put in the scriptures for us to see, it gives us a good idea that seriously, if he could take out a lion and he could take out a bear, this is just a human being, a dumb one at that, you know? And plus he's big. He was an easy target. You know, I'm sure David in his, in his thoughts there, uh, you know, was considering what was before him. Um, which moves us up to our up to our verse this morning. I'm going to start in uh, verse 38 today. And hopefully we can finish this up. I'll do my best. But if we don't, we'll pick it up one last time. And then that should finish it off. If I don't get through it today. Um, I'm on a time limit. I keep myself on a time limit. When I preach, I have a, I have a watch up here, a clock. So I keep everything where it needs to be. So it helps. So We're at 38 right now. And it says, And Saul armed... David with his armor and he put a bronze helmet on his head he also clothed him with a coat of mail David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk for he had not tested them and David said to Saul I cannot walk with these for I have not tested them so David this is I love this portion of scripture here David took them off you know, he took off this other man's outfit, right? Because he knew the outfit that he needed would be the same outfit that we need. He would need to put on Christ in order to defy the, this arrogant enemy of God. His weapons were the weapons of the Lord. And when you're in that place as David was... He had no fear. I like what Augustine says. He says, he desired, he desired to go forth to the battle in the lightest possible armor. Strong in the Lord, not in himself. Armed not with steel, but with faith. 
Colossians 3.9 makes another reference to us so we can get the idea here uh, at some level anyways. It says, lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. And what? And you have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. You know, we see this reference here. We see that, you know, this armor didn't work, so David takes it off. And in some sense, you can kind of see the parallel at some level that he was taken off, basically, what was hindering him, what would keep him from winning this battle, dragging someone's army armor around the battlefield would be tragic. You know, but he knew what he was comfortable in, and he knew his God. He knew his weapons, he knew the field of battle, he knew how to destroy, but that coupled with his knowledge of God, knowing God, those two are combustible. You know, we're to be skilled in everything that we do. See a man who is skilled in his way, he will not stand before uh, poor men, which is basically talking about uh, people of no status, but you will be placed before kings. In Scripture, it goes back and forth about those must be skillful. When you see the temple, when it was created, it was done by just slapping stones up there. It, it was There was a skillful plan that they had in constructing the temple just as God had commanded them. There was a lot of detail, a lot of skill. And even God himself hired people that would create uh, the cherubims and on the ark. And there was certain people that were given, it says, the spirit of the Lord and the skill to create. And this is why we always want to support and endorse that reality in the Christian life. Whether that's music or that's poetry or you're writing books or you're painting or you're involved in art. These things are beautiful they come out of us. They, we're to be skillful unto the Lord. Skillful in the way that we preach. Skillful in the way that we bring the word of God to the people of God. We're to be a skillful people. We're not to be sloppy and just say, well, you know, the Lord will take care of it. It's not a big deal. God commands us to be detailed, to be skillful in the things that we do. To be orderly in everything that we were involved in. <clears throat> this is why... We have to lift up all those within the church who have different skill sets and are, have different callings on their lives. Well, you're not, you know, that's not a calling of the Lord. Well, yes, it is. If God has called that person to do that specific task, as long as obviously we know for sure it's of the Lord. Uh, a lot of people say they're called to things that they're not called to. Um, it's more flesh-driven, manufactured from the flesh, opposed to God actually calling you into a certain place. But I would give you today encouragement to relax in that. I mean, fight with it. Use it. Put all your, bags, all your eggs in one basket and go for it. Paul said it's just one thing <clears throat> that I do, not 40 different things. He was focused in one area <clears throat> of his life, and so should we. David was encumbered with Saul's armor. David knew that the less restrictive he was, the more dangerous he was. He demonstrated that in his ability to kill both the lion and the bears uh, was, an evident, was an obvious sign that he was ready uh, to take uh, out this mouthy giant. 
It is a strong reminder for us today that God can do whatever seems impossible through the most underestimated means. I mean, could you imagine? Think about the times when you've started something. You thought, there's no way, <clears throat> excuse me, I keep coughing here, on God's green earth that I'm going to be able to get this done. I have no money to invest, right? I have nothing. I have no, I have no money, you know. I want to do this business. I want to be involved in this. I have nothing. But you know what? If God has called you to do that, he'll provide the means in order to see it through. Remember years ago, I, I wanted to own my own gym. I moved to Arizona. I lived in Apache Junction, which is the worst place to move to when you move from Michigan, which is always cold, right? I moved into the hottest state on the planet, right? And my body did some very weird things under that, that kind of heat coming in. I came in in a convertible. On top of that, talk about someone who doesn't know anything. So I lived in this old, beat-up, run-down trailer, trailer park in Apache Junction when I first moved down here. And I had a piece of paper on the wall saying, I want to open my own gym someday. And I, you know, I, did I think it was possible? No. I had nothing. I mean, I had no money. I had all kinds of things, hives breaking out of my body. I had nothing going for me. Not even a job or anything. You know, and five years later, I got the keys to open up my own gym with over, like, I think, what, $70,000 worth of equipment that someone just happened to have stored in their garage, let me use it, and I could pay it off. Um, I ended up going to business with another man that, that had a building that we could use. All the clients that I had at LA Fitness moved right over there with me. Two years' time, I bought the other owner out, and I was full owner. Of a very large, not very large, but it was, it was a good facility. I had six personal trainers working underneath me. I had massage therapists. I had nutritional counseling. It was going, and it was doing well. I did very well. I sold it five years later, became debt-free, and then I moved to Texas and eventually to Scotland. But that was with nothing. I had not, I had laughed out of the banks. Literally, you say, oh, they didn't actually. Yes, they actually laughed me out of the banks. I had no way of accomplishing it if God wasn't in it. And God provided everything I need to see it through. Uh, so we have to remember, you know, these, these moments in life where we look at what we have and we're so focused on not having enough. God wants us to just take what we have and utilize that for his glory and trust God that he will bring whatever it is he called you to, he would bring it to pass. David's weapons are those he was used to. You know, the sling and, 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 and these weapons. He, he, he lived with these things on him all the time. They were just a natural part, or what they would say, extensions of himself. He knew these so well that they were just nothing, anything other than that would encumber him to what he was trying to do. And it seemed that Saul, if you read the equipment assortment that Saul was trying to put upon David, it's almost like he was dressing him up like Goliath. It was really odd, the helmet, and he's just trying to, it almost seemed like this isn't going to be a battle between um, the spiritual and, 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 and the evil, right? This is a battle between who has the best armor on. So he's got this, got this, let's pile it on David too. So it's going to be a sense of the battle will be won by whoever looks the most intimidating. You know, see, he's piling stuff on David and it's just not going to work, which really does ultimately at the end of the day, it offends Goliath. Um, and this is just a good point to say, hey, trying to be like someone else, using someone else's identity never works in life. 
never worked. Going out in Saul's outfit wouldn't work. You know, David needed to be in how he was clothed and what he could function the best in. And same with us. Sometimes it's not what you think you have to be or you have to get this or be like this person, you know, or act like this person to get a certain benefit in life. No, don't do that. Your identity isn't a crucified Lord. We live the crucified life. And that's the life that we live. And that's your identity. And it is a life of suffering. It is a life of ridicule. It's a life of disappointments. It's a life of hardships. It is difficult. And it is challenging being a real Christian. It really is. Now that doesn't mean you're going to go around and just be a jerk to everybody. But it does mean that your life, if you're living in any sense of holiness to God's word, you will be an eyesore to people. The Bible says that. Um, and this is really, you know, something we need to understand. And before we move on, you guys understand your, your identity. Young people, if you have not come to Christ, I would appeal to you this morning. If you're still saying, hey, you know what, I don't see my need for Christ. I would tell you today that you need Christ based on the fact you violated his law in every sense of the word, and you were born a sinner by practice. By nature, you're sinful. You're an enemy of God, okay? Your age isn't going to remove that reality. This is why I appeal to you today that if you hear the preaching of God's word, that you'd realize that you are a great sinner in need of God's great grace through Jesus Christ. I would push you towards that. And when that happens, if that's not happened already, your identity is in Jesus Christ. It's not in how well you can do this or do that. Listen, I know as parents, we can be performance-driven for our kids, right? They do something, then we, we ace on all of their performances, and then we wonder why they perform to try to get our love, right? And it's the same with the Lord. You know, we think the Lord only loves us when we read our Bibles or when we pray or when we share our faith, you know, or when we're at church, you know. But that's not the case. It's all of life. Uh, Christ loves us regardless of how well you've read your Bible this morning or prayed in these things. God still loves you. You can't shake away the love of God. You can shake away the love from other people in your family. You can, you can move them out of your way. I've done that before, you know. But with God, He doesn't shake us away and get annoyed with us. But as a godly parent, He takes care of us. And the Bible says He pitieth us as a child, as a, as a father would pity his child. Imagine that. You see your child acting like a goofball, right? You pity that child. You don't harass him and belittle him and, and call him a bunch of names and reject him. No, you take care in the way that you love him. You pity him. Because you're the stronger one. You're the, it really falls on me, right? In the same way with the Lord. Just remember that before you get caught up in the bullying at school or wherever that may be. I don't know what your life's consist of at work or whatever. Just remember at the end of the day, there is something that the world can never take from you, and that is Christ. You're sound and you're saved in Him. We must realize as well that Moses conquered Pharaoh and set Israel free from the bondage of Egypt with only a stick. I mean, think about that, you know? God says there's a staff. I mean, it's like, what in the world, right? And David not only had a staff, but he also had five stones. And I don't believe as many do that the extra four stones were there in case of Goliath's brothers. Yeah, I don't fault. Maybe, maybe that's the case. Um, but I think rather 
that he would have a supply just in case the one didn't kill Goliath. I mean, many say it was a lack of faith to bring those extra stones, but this isn't the case whatsoever. We have the testimony of Scripture that shares many instances where there were leftovers, right? Such as feeding of the 5,000. Also, the army of Israel would stockpile the weapons in case of emergencies. And many times, even reserving portions of their military were kept in reserve in case of the tiring army needing to be replaced with fresh infantry. Someone that understands the mind of God understands that we are still human beings. We're not floating around like little angels all over the earth. We're human beings and we have ways in which that we function as human beings. I see the, the extra stones. I see that they, they, they characterize a person with wisdom and prudence. That's wisdom and prudence to store up. That's a godly attribute that he would take the care because he loved God and loved his people. That, hey, if I miss, which could happen, he could, listen, he could have missed. We understand that Christ guided the stone. I get all that. I agree with all that. But in our own constitution, how are we to behave? God gives us his word. He says to store up. He says to put aside things. You know, it was just his armory, just extra weapons, just extra ammunition, just in case I need to hit him twice. You just, I mean, this is, this is prudence and wisdom, not a lack of faith. I think it shows his faith by the fact that he was ready and prepared for whatever happened. And I think it's a beautiful statement. Um, David, besides being prudent, was also observant. Uh, he clearly saw the size of Goliath and recognized that this man, as big as he was, would be an easy target. So this is where he's at. This is the situation. We're up to the point now where we're going to the point where we're going to be making contact with Goliath. Um, David did not flinch, but he drew near to the Philistine, the scriptures say. And he had five smooth stones. Okay, he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had and his sling was in his hand. There were these, these stones, if you would just recognize the care, and this is what I really want to focus on as well, is that we would understand that the care of our shepherd is seen in David. You know, the fact that David just didn't go running up there and grab every rock he saw. Notice this. Jesus said, if you're going to go out to battle, make sure that you, that you have enough, um, you have your armies big enough to be able to go and fight against your enemy. If not, don't do that. And this is the kind of, this is the, kind of the idea that we see here. Now, he's taking extra care. He's getting, if I'm going to go hunting for an elephant, I'm going to use an eight gauge. Probably a slug, right? I'm not going to use an eight-gauge slug on a pheasant or a bird. I'm going to use birdshot, right? Ammo, picking the right kind of ammo for the right kind of game is extremely intelligent, knowing what it's going to take to take this guy out. I'm sure David had picked many different kinds of stones for a different kind of game at the time or when he was protecting uh, the sheep. But in this case... It says he picked up five smooth stones. And if you would study the reality of the five smooth stones, you would see that they're shaped in a certain way for a couple reasons. Number one's velocity. 
The smoother the stone, the higher velocity, the quicker it's going to get there. Okay? And then the shape of the stone is flat, right? Almost like you would see some of the old axes that were made by the Indians in the old days. You see the axes on there. They were, they, were, they were like a round shape and then they were thin. Why? So you could hack through the wood. David knew he'd need a certain kind of stone to break through the brain plate, through the forehead, into the brain. You know, he wasn't going to hit him with a round stone. Plunk, plunk, you know what I mean? He was wanting to hit something that would kill him. David's intentions were to kill Goliath, not to injure Goliath, right? So his stone, his choice of, of ammo is a beautiful illustration of how we should be, and how Christ is bringing the right type of ammo into the battle against Satan. He gives us the ammo. He gives us the encouragement in Ephesians. We know that there is a way to defeat the, the heavenly wicked spirits from above. We know that we don't fight against flesh and blood, right? We're fighting against the spiritual enemies in high places. And there is, God didn't just leave us without any weapons. He gave us different weapons. He gave us the, you know, the, 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 the belt and then, you know, the, the shield and the shoes and, you know, the sword. All these things that go along with that. But here we see the stones and five stones that he took and that they were smooth and this was going to be an opportunity to show what this looks like coming from his arm and we do know that Judges 2016 is that they would sling at a hair breath and not miss that means like a hair that's how that's how like he hit a hair that's how that's how good uh, the Israelites were Many were ambidextrous as well, but the Israelites were just incredible shots with the sling. And I would guess that they learned from David. You know, David taught them how to fight with these things. And we see this reality here. David's taken everything into, uh, you know, it is like he's just a sloppy running out that I have faith, I have faith, you know. And, and, but there was works involved here. There was work for him to do. There was preparation. There was thought. He had been trained on the field with the sheep. He understood from all of his training there. Um, he knew what to do in the present. He knew what kind of ammo. He knew what kind of speed elements. He would know the wind. He would know everything. Even though God was completely sovereign, God was in complete control, he did, he did command his servant to be prepared in such a way as if it all depended on him, when everything depended on God. Interestingly enough, the number five in Scripture, I'm just going to rattle off a bunch of numbers up here, by the way, either. But the number five in Scripture, uh, as with the five stones, uh, symbolizes, number five in Scripture always symbolizes God's grace, goodness, and favor towards humans. The word five is recorded 345 times in Scripture. And since five represents grace, um, multiplied by itself it produces 25 which means grace upon grace John 1:16 The number 5 also symbolizes God's grace goodness and favor towards humans it is mentioned 318 times as well in scripture um it is really, really this five this idea here that God is trying to communicate to us is that this is the gospel in action. He wants us to pull from the story, not in the sense we're going to run out and chase people around with a sling in our hand. 
like a bunch of madmen, right? But that, that we would look at this like, you know, this, this, this is the gospel of Christ. David's the Christ. David is a representation of the Christ, right? He is the he is the picture. Uh, you know, he is the shadow. He is the type uh, of Christ in place of all of us. We're the ones trembling right there by Saul. We're we're terrified. That's us. We're not David, right? We're not David. David represents Christ stepping in for us for what we couldn't do ourselves. David steps in as a type of Christ defeats a tyrant of sin in our lives and lets us go free to continue to worship him. The number five also translates into a word in Hebrew, which means avodah is the way you say that. It's avodah, which means labor. Uh, it's the meaning of the word labor. Uh, the word avodah comes from the ancient Hebrew, so ancient in fact that its root word avad appears all the way back in the second chapter of Genesis and then shows up later in 29 when the Lord told them to take dominion to, to go to work to labor in the garden that didn't change after the fall of man he kept them working in the garden even after the fall showing therefore that there is most certainly labor in involved and the word avodah doesn't mean just one thing. The English version of scripture, it has been roughly translated into three different words. Work, worship, and service. But avodah defies those separated categories. And in so doing, it both expands our understanding of worship, elevates our idea of work to a whole new plane. This is the idea that's being communicated to us today. We understand he had five stones. And with five, what is he talking about? How are we to reflect on this? How are we to utilize this for our own lives? Well, he wants, the Lord wants every part of us. Not just a certain portion of us. He wants every part. Our work, our service, and our worship. It's all intertwined because it's all part of living our lives devoted to him. The Puritans actually had a really good grasp of this concept, unlike the Catholic view, which separated holy things and secular things. The Puritans believed that they were to serve God <clears throat> in all areas of their life. Rather, the, rather than career or job, they preferred the term calling because they recognized that whatever you do, we are to treat it as a calling from God and do it for his glory. It's a powerful statement. William Perkins, the Puritan, expresses the concept of Avodah when he says, The main end of our lives is to serve God, worship. In the serving of men, service. In the works of our calling, work. They all go together. And it's really showing us God's sovereignty and human responsibility. You could be what's called a high Calvinist, right? Or a hyper Calvinist, same thing. Where they believe basically you don't have to do anything since God is sovereign, he will do it all, right? And we just sit back and we don't do anything, which is heresy. The reality is from the really the Reformed perspective, or let's just say from Scripture, from the Scripture, uh, shows us very clearly here that God's sovereignty works in connection with, with our human responsibility. In other words, we are the means and by which God brings about his work on this planet through his people. Amen. Spurgeon said this, The lazy bones of the Orthodox churches cry, God will do his own work. And then they look out the softest pillow they can find and put it under their heads and say, The eternal purposes will be carried out. 
God will be glorified. Well, that is all very fine talk, he says. But it can be used with the most mischievous design. You can make opium out of it, which will... This person always has these funny little sayings. For some reason, I have a hard time getting these faces. Which it will lull you into a deep and dreadful slumber and prevent you... It'll prevent your being of any kind of use at all. And that is so true. It makes us lazy. You know, we become lazy because we know God is certainly sovereign over all things, but we don't do anything. Which brings us to verse 41. So the Philistine came and began to draw near to David. And the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David... The Bible says that he disdained him. A disdain means this. He was unworthy of one's consideration or respect or holding a person into contempt. In other words, what in the world are you doing sending this boy to fight me? He's not even worthy of my time. You're, you're really, what you're doing, that's a huge, huge insult to me, that you would send a boy out here? Are you are you serious? I mean, I mean, you can you can almost grab that reality, right? You can see that happening. You can see anybody saying that, right? But the reality is, is that God had other intentions in, involved. Um, it says that day in verse forty-two, and David he was only a youth; he was ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistines said to David, "Am I a dog?" that you would come to me with sticks. So it's interesting. I like Guzik. Guzik's uh, commentary is, is good. He, he says, when Goliath asked, am I a dog? It was worse than it sounds. The Hebrew word for dog, which is Caleb, is used in passages like Deuteronomy 23.18 for male homosexual prostitutes. Goliath felt that sending David was an insult to his manhood. I mean, this is, this is pretty serious. It doesn't get any more serious than that. Uh, this is the, and, this, and this is the climax. This is what's going on. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will make your flesh to the birds of the air and the beast of the field. Uh, this is just such an intense feeling, you know. He's just like, Come to me, you know. And uh, oh, oh, David, you know, he's... He did not hesitate. And then it says that in verse 45, And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. Then brings it back to that sin we talked about, in whom you have defied. In other words, within about, you know, Couple more breaths out of your lungs, sir, and you are going into eternity. And this is it. I mean, this is this is it. David's like, yeah, you come to me with all of this brilliance, right? And opulence, you know. But he's like, I come to you. He didn't say with my with my you know sling. He didn't say all that. You know, he basically went right to the Lord. I'm not, you know, I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord of Hosts, the armies of Israel. You know, when you think about that Lord of hosts, yeah, what does that say to us? We don't have time to really dwell on it for very long, but 
this whole idea of the Lord of hosts is seen in Isaiah 6. Remember Isaiah, in, in Isaiah 6 where he says, For my eyes have seen the King, right? Then what does he say? The Lord of hosts. So, you know, when Isaiah saw the King, you know, he saw him high and lifted up, and he called him what they would call him, the Lord of hosts. The King. Who is that King? That's Christ our Lord. So when David was coming at the giant, he was coming at him in the name of the Lord of hosts. He was coming and Jesus Christ was leading, right? And he had no clue that he was about ready to have a head-on collision with King Christ and get absolutely annihilated. Same with Satan. Satan thought he had it all figured out. He saw Christ on the cross and thought, this is it. This is the end. He's done. It's over. I have won. And the Bible says that Christ rose from the dead three days later, defeating death, hell, and the grave. Amazing. You see the parallels here. David's weapons were the same weapons we talked about earlier that we use. William Grinnell that wrote the famous work The The Christian in Complete Armor. A great book. I mean, just you have to read it. He just he says that, you know, God put on Christ to defeat the enemy of sin and defeat Satan. The same clothes that we put on to defeat Satan and his minions. That's powerful. That's only a Puritan can say those things and get away with it, right? But it was just such an extraordinary thought in my mind. Like, you know, the Bible constantly preaches to us, telling us to put on Christ. Put on Christ, you know. Uh, Romans 13, 12. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. There's his armor. You want to know what armor he was wearing? Certainly wasn't Saul's armor. He had on Christ, the armor of light. There is no other armor of light, just so we're clear. The armor of light is Christ himself. Ephesians 6, verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. These are these verses and these chapters are serious to you. Struggling with sin, struggling with besetting sin, struggling with addictions, you're ashamed, you're miserable, you're guilty, you're tired, you're worn out from these battles, you just don't know what to do anymore with your life because you can't seem to break the spiral, you can't seem to break the pattern. It's just one thing after another. I will tell you this morning that the way to be delivered from these things is putting on the whole armor of God. Remember this, though, and learn this, because it's not just about what they tell you in Sunday school when they tell you to put on the belt of truth. All these things are true. The song's cute. But the reality is this, is that we need to put on Christ every morning. How do we do that? By being in His Word and about appealing to Him in prayer, communicating with Him, being around other believers, having not only the affirmation, but the protection and the accountability needed to be to grow into maturity. You need all these things 
Because I just serve Christ, want to stay home and watch Billy Graham crusade for church. That's not biblical at all. It's biblical to be connected and be a member at a local church. Therefore, you get the care you need. You get the accountability you need. We can't hold you accountable if you're not committed here. We can't chase you around the world trying to help you if you're not committed to the church. It's both ways. We'll commit to you if you commit to us. Make sense? That is very important in the whole idea of how we, how we function in warfare. Warfare, the Bible says that, you know, um, counseling with others, preparing yourself for battle is the way to go. David confides, confides in the Lord. He says, this day, just so you know, not tomorrow, not next week, but this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. Oh, that's not very nice. He's declaring right there today you're going to die. And not only that, I'm going to, I'm going to cut your head off. Think about that. Startling, right? Okay, what? Okay, I could see maybe get a lucky shot and somehow you hit me in the side of the head. I pass out, you know, we call it good. But he's saying, hey, no, I'm going to kill you today. And I'm going to take your head off. And then he's basically saying, and then he says this. He says, and this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And then in 47, that all the assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Notice he said our hands as well. It's, a, it's plural there. It's not just him. Into our hands. He's talking as a team. He's talking as an army. He's talking as a whole the, of Israel. You know, he's, he's not putting them down. Never called them a bunch of names. Called them a bunch of shivering cowards. He never did that. He just went out and he took care of business. I like what Psalms 89, 19 it's kind of prophesied. Um, this whole idea here wasn't really a prophecy. It's more exactly what the Lord said. He says, I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found my servant David. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. With, with whom my hand shall be established. Also my arm shall strengthen him. Obviously, these are reflections on Christ as well. Um, and then 22, it says, The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his face. And plague those who hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him. And in my name his horn shall be exalted. From the commentators that I looked, um, looked and I look at all of them. All the, the ones that we would call good, right? Um, declared that he was, he was talking about David, King David. But with, obviously, the type and shadow of Christ as well that can refer to him as well. But these did signify um, what the Lord was saying about David being anointed and, and, and where he would go. Um, 1 Samuel 17.48, we're picking up. So it was when the Philistines arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried, and this is, a, this is such an important part, and ran toward the, the army to meet the Philistine. Check that out. He didn't do no Texas sidestep. He went straight for the enemy. He said he hurried. Could you imagine being that excited to take this guy out? That you don't just run, but you're, you're in a hurry to take this guy out. 
Just amazing that, that when you think about that, he hurried and he ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Could you imagine being there that day and actually seeing that with your physical eyes, what that would have felt like? Better than any Tyson fight. You would see that and you'd just be like, it's something about make the hairs on your arm stand up to see this boy cooking across the battlefield, right past the army, right towards this giant. And just the, the utter just amazement of what he's going to accomplish would have been very, very heavy. Then, the, the, then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and he slung it and it struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead. And he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there's no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran, stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Wow. Hebrews 4.12 reminds me of, it says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Of the heart. I mean, that stone penetrated through the old brain plate right into his, right into his, his brain and killing him. And it's so powerful. God's, God's, God's sword is sharper than any two-edged sword, sharper than them stones, sharper than the sharpest guillotine, guillotine or razor blade spiritually passing through us. We see the, that's how the gospel works. It's powerful. It's sharp. You know, a lot of times, you ever cut yourself with something real sharp? You don't feel it until about five seconds, six seconds later when you see all the blood and you start getting carried away. It's the same thing. You know, sometimes you're preaching to people, you're talking to people, you're sharing the gospel, and you're thinking to yourself, this isn't even penetrating. This isn't even working. They're not even listening. Chewing their gum, rolling their eyes, or whatever they do. But you have to understand something. They just could have been sliced very deeply by, a, by the word of God that's sharper than any two-edged sword. Was sliced them. They just haven't realized that they're bleeding to death. We have to trust God's word. That we're proclaiming God's word. We're sharing our faith. We don't always have to see results right then. It could be 20 years down the road, 10 years down the road, a month or a week. But you can depend and trust God knowing full well that his arrow will hit the intended spot as needed. And then the Philistines, they saw their champion was dead and they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley into the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines, they fell along the road in Shereem, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. And he put his armor in his tent took dominion over his enemies. Christ said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We preach a prevailing gospel, not a defeatist gospel. Christ always wins. His gospel always wins. We have to understand it is a prevailing gospel, not a failing gospel. Very powerful to, to see this whole incident. When Saul, David, uh, when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he was in in awe as well. And he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son 
is this youth? Wow! Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I don't know. I have no idea. You should know. I mean, didn't he sit in front of you with his harp, you know, and calming your demons? You remember that they look kind of like? Um, oh, the king said, inquires whose son this young man is. And then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. That's pretty crazy. Hey, how's it going today? You know, he's sitting there with a bloody sword and a, the head of Goliath. I mean, could you imagine? That really gets me going. That really makes me want to just praise my Savior. Then as David returned from the slaughter, um, Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And so David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Brings his father in to it and letting him know, I am the son of Jesse. Amazing story. There's so much, obviously, there's so much there you could spend eternity on. But let us go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of David. We're thankful that we can see Christ in this. Lord, that this is the gospel of grace moving in power, Lord. Lord, we trust your sovereignty, Lord, but we know we are responsible as well. We're, we're called into action, not inactivity. So, Lord, be glorified with the small body of believers, Lord. Use us for your glory in this short amount of time that we have left on this planet. In Jesus' name, amen.